G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you doing today? Good to be chatting with you on the podcast again, as always. Good to be with you again, Rowan. Now, for today's episode, we've called it Mobilising Motivation. So, gee, the topic of motivation, we've uh, just chosen a little one to knock off the top here today, haven't we? <laughs> yes, it uh, maybe is a little bit more difficult to get motivated in different ways at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And today's episode comes at a time when, look, as someone from Melbourne heading into another six weeks of lockdown, which on the face of it kind of sucks really but at the same time we want to use today's episode to have a bit of a look back at the last period of lockdown maybe have a look at some of the things that we wanted to do but didn't get around to and so today's episode is about putting in place some of the strategies to be able to motivate us to do certain behaviors Yes, because one thing that we've noticed generally in our practice with clients, but also in the general community, there is a bit more of a general malaise at the moment. There's that disappointment of feeling we were doing so well in Australia, and many areas have, but in Melbourne in particular, it's been disappointing with going into another lockdown. And in some ways, it can be more difficult a second time around when people felt that we'd done really well with that first wave and people had got through that pretty well made sacrifices but then to feel that things were opening up there were lesser restrictions the uh, bars and restaurants and gyms were all opening up again now to go back on that that leaves a number of people feeling maybe a bit more frustrated. So, But we thought that if we come up with some tips that can help people make some positive changes in behaviour in the meantime, then maybe that's something that helps bring a bit of positive energy into the current situation. So today's episode is going to be about recognising when we do have motivation to do something and then how we can convert that into an ongoing behaviour. Yes, and uh, we've had previous episodes on things like increasing physical exercise, on managing our anger reactions in conflict situations, on things like curbing addictions. And so what we talk about today, developing motivation, further mobilising our motivation, can also help be further motivated to tackle some of those other things that we've talked about previously. And so I suppose to start here, Dad, why is it that It's not the case that everyone can just be motivated to do something and so they're able to just do it easily. Like I remember chatting to a few people about the first period of lockdown and it's almost like all of us had these kind of little projects that we never got around to or these things that we were going to do, but it wasn't that we weren't motivated to do them. It was more just that we never really got around to it in the end. So why is it that people can have a motivation to do something but still struggle to get it done? Yes, well, it's easy enough to have good intentions, isn't it? Like decluttering or increasing our exercise or cutting back on alcohol. It's one thing to have an intention. It's another thing to follow through with it. And so we sometimes use the term that willpower is a weak muscle. It actually takes energy, our willpower. So any ways that we can get more return from our willpower are going to be worthwhile. And so we'll be talking about some techniques that help with that today. But As an example of how willpower takes energy, there is a a fellow, Roy Baumeister, a leading positive psychologist who did an experiment on this where he showed that when people use willpower to resist doing something they feel like doing, it actually takes up energy. And the way he did this is he had people in an experiment where they were performing some task 
and they could either eat chocolate cookies or they could eat radishes. But the people who could eat radishes had chocolate cookies in the room and the smell of chocolate in the room. So their task was to perform this experimental task and not eat the chocolate cookies. Now, what happened afterwards is he gave them all another task, the ones that had the cookies and the ones who'd resisted them for the radishes. And what he found is the people who'd used their willpower to resist the chocolate cookies could not continue as long on the later task. They didn't persist as long on this task of persistence. It saw how long someone could stick at something. So the people who'd eaten the chocolate cookies, they could keep on going longer with the second task because they hadn't been using up their willpower to try and resist the cookies in the first place. So that shows that when we try and resist something or when we engage our will in a certain area, we're actually using up glucose in a certain way and it also depletes our energy. So maybe the theme is it's worth prioritising where we use our willpower because willpower is a weak muscle and it's finite. Well, that's really interesting that we almost have an energy for willpower because I remember back into the first lockdown and I'm sure this is something that that some people out there will be able to relate to, but I remember around the time of Easter, sort of obviously a bit of chocolate in the house and all this sort of stuff, trying to do a bit more work at home. I actually almost like struggled a bit more on the days where you had to think, all right, you know, don't just get into the Easter eggs. You've got to almost hold off a little bit here. It actually, I think, affected sort of things in other ways that just sort of meant even if sort of I was a bit more distracted or whatever it was. But for me, like that was almost a tangible example of a time when, yeah, I, like I really felt affected sort of elsewhere. And, and for me, it was sort of chocolate around Easter. But I think that's relevant to, for example, working at home when there is food in the house or when there is sort of snacks to be snacked on all day long. Yes, and uh, this podcast, we're not trying to motivate people to eat more chocolate, but the general (laughs) theme of this is that it actually does use up glucose. Exercising our willpower, they did these other experiments that showed that when people exercised their willpower in certain ways and they could measure the amount of glucose in their blood, there was a reduction according to the effort that people have been putting into what they were doing, including exercising willpower. So it comes back to the idea of, prioritising what we spend our energy on and being, I suppose, aware of why that's important to us. Well, I suppose if we go back to previous episodes on the podcast where we've spoken about the idea that motivation equals importance plus confidence, well, I suppose if we really break it down, you could see how a lack of energy would affect someone's confidence. So it could affect their motivation almost if we look at it kind of formulaically like that. Well, it does help to have a clear idea on why we'd like to make a change, but I think it's helpful if it's more than just an idea, meaning if we also draw on our feelings. When we talk about motivation, it's partly about moving us, and our emotions can move us. That's why they're called emotions. It's got the word motion in it, and so our emotions can influence us in certain ways. So if we think of how we will feel if we followed through on our intention. How am I likely to feel at the end of the day if I've completed that work project? How am I likely to feel if I've got the materials together to engage in that hobby so I can go ahead with it? How am I likely to feel if I've engaged in exercise today? 
And say with exercise, if I'm lying in bed and it's cold and dark and I feel like staying in bed, but I'm thinking, oh, it's good to exercise, how am I likely to feel? How will I feel if I get up, get my gym gear and go for a run? How am I likely to feel after that if I've had a run for half an hour? And if you can envision yourself how you'll feel after you've done something, and if you can think of how you're likely to feel after that, that helps remind us of the why we're doing something. So in other words, having more than just an idea that we might do something, thinking of how we will feel afterwards and being able to envision ourselves afterwards. But then it gets back to what we actually do to make that happen. And I think often it's about small steps. It's about starting somewhere. It's about doing something, even something simple toward a goal. For example, if it is to do with more exercise, just simply getting out our running gear for the next day and making it easier for ourselves to take that step. Well, I like that emphasis on linking a motivation to a behaviour and how we would feel if we were to do something. Because like, I remember thinking to myself a couple of times after seeing people who are motivational type speakers, and although they were very motivating in certain ways, it was as if they seemed to lack an activational component. So you sort of get out of the talk and you're feeling really great about what they'd said, but you don't actually go on to do anything yourself. So I really like that way that if we break it down into smaller actions, then the whole thing just seems so much more achievable. Yes, I think we can underestimate the power of behaviour and focusing on a change in behaviour. And I remember when I started working in psychology, we didn't use the term cognitive behavioural therapy, a prevailing mainstream therapy around the world. The term we used was behaviour modification. And so I used to go to behaviour modification conferences. Now, the thing with that is a lot of people thought, oh, behaviour modification, you're not paying attention to emotions. You're not paying attention to thinking. This is a very narrow psychology. But really, it was about being a pragmatic psychology. And yes, it maybe did underemphasise at times the importance of thinking and emotions. But here's an example of how powerful it could be to focus on behaviour. I once saw a very disabled policeman who had chronic post-traumatic stress disorder from terrible things that he'd experienced in his work role, but also severe depression going on for years. And he was basically very isolated, living at home, not able to work again. He was very anxious, had all sorts of difficulties, but a main difficulty was severe depression, very low mood. Then one time he took it upon himself to start to walk to a dam on his farm that was about 200 metres away from his front door. So the first thing he had to do was get out of his front door. But then what he started to do is to realise that each day he could at least walk to the dam. And before that, he'd basically been housebound, even on his farm. But what he did is he kept this walking up day after day, and after each day he did this walk, he'd say to himself, at least I did that. At least I did that. At least I did that. He was reminding himself that it was worthwhile at least activating himself to the point of getting going and getting out the door. Now, you can imagine what tended to happen over coming weeks. He would walk further, and then he could find he could walk a kilometre, and then he found he could walk around other places on his farm. Then he found he could start to take up different kinds of farming activity. Now, he never returned to work, even though he was getting towards retirement age, I suppose we mightn't have expected that. But by the same token, he was mobilising himself to the point 
that he made great inroads into his depression. He still had some ongoing trauma reactions, most definitely, but it was more like mild depression. He could engage with other people. He joined a group. He was often the one challenging other people in the group to maybe mobilise themselves a little bit more. And he was as disabled originally as any of the others would have been. So they listened to him and paid attention. But that led me to think afterwards with many people that I see who are trying to change their behaviour in some way or make some kind of progress, do something, however small, but remind yourself, at least I did that. Often profound change, in his case, a marked reduction in his depression, a marked improvement in his thinking patterns. But it started off with getting out of the front door and going for a 200-metre walk. Well, that's something that I find relative to work in many ways, I must admit, because there's one thing I heard one time called the two-minute rule, which basically means it's to avoid procrastination. Instead of looking to launch into a full-scale activity in the sense of you're going to have to complete something when you start it in the same sitting, well, it actually just more says, just do two minutes of it and then see where you get to. And and most of the time, after two minutes, you go, well, I've, I've sort of started now, so I may as well keep going from here. And I know for me, one area that that's really helped with is, for example, you know, you get to say 4.30, 5 o'clock at the end of the day, you might only have an hour or two left. And so you think, well, I won't start this activity because I won't have time to fully get my head into it and start it. And then it'll be time to finish up and then I'll have to do it again tomorrow. But that whole, whole idea of just starting for two minutes and just even getting a little bit done, well, you end up getting so much more because that time is, it's no longer dead time. It's time that you just well, you just start something. You can just make a start on something, and there's a huge benefit that comes from that. Yes, it's often the starting which is the most difficult bit. And as you're talking, I can remember many times, whether it be with study or also with writing, that I would tend to procrastinate in different ways and feel that you know, morning had been wasted or whatever. But when we'd get to the stage of thinking, okay, I'm going to be sitting at the desk by, for example, 10 o'clock on a writing day, And do nothing else but start off, as you say, just for a few minutes. I'm going to start off jotting a few ideas on paper or something like that. And if you pick the time to start as being, say, early in the day or when you're ready to capitalise on that energy, if you have a main productive time, for example, late morning, if you can fit that two minutes in at that strategic time of the day, get that start early, the chances are you do a little bit more, you do a little bit more, before you know it, You might be lost in yourself and you're off and away. You might be working for an hour and a half straight very productively. Well, to that degree, do you have any strategies then to, for example, just make that start? Like we spoke about the two-minute rule there, but do you have any other ways that can help people just get moving in the right direction? One of the niftiest techniques I've heard of is called the 54321 technique. And this was developed, I think she was a lawyer, Mel Robbins, and she had a wonderful interview with Libby Gore, actually, an ABC Melbourne interviewer. And uh, we might put that link up on the website. But what Mel came up with was this idea of, for example, launching a rocket, having a countdown. What happens with a countdown with a rocket? 10, 9, 8. Well, she thought she would get herself going, doing a count back, Five, four, three, two, one. Now, the situation was I think she'd been suffering from a significant depression. So she had to activate herself in some way. It was similar to the policeman having to get going. 
but she might be lying in bed, it might be cold, didn't feel like getting out of bed for the day. So what would she do? She'd think to herself, five, four, three, two, one, up, up on the one, and then she's on her feet. Then we'll might as well go to the shower, might as well get dressed. It was a very simple starter motor, if you like. And then I've found that other people can apply that to all sorts of situations. For example, there might be a conflict situation that's been brewing at home. Someone walks into the kitchen, their partner's there, they feel that they're about to sound off and it's about to start an argument and thinking, five, four, three, two, one, turning on one's heels, going to another room. It's a way of acting immediately, intervening, rather than just lapsing into some other kind of habit or impulsive behaviour. And so people can use that for all sorts of things. It can even be if someone's about to engage in an obsessive compulsive kind of compulsion, like washing their hands. They might have already washed their hands five times that last hour and about to go to the bathroom again, think five, four, three, two, one, go out the front door. Now, it's a surprisingly powerful technique because it subverts habits. Habits and repetitive behaviours are partly programmed in our brain at a part called the basal ganglia. So it's like a computer program and the hardware is there in our brain with these circuits that lead us to engage in a habit. But if we simply use that 54321 technique, we're disrupting the habit and introducing something else which helps switch our frontal lobes on. Just because we're deciding, we're choosing, we're intending some other activity that switches our frontal lobes on and we can go down a different path. Now that actually can be surprisingly powerful for getting us to do some kind of action, for getting us out of bed to engage in exercise. It could be choosing to shut the door of the fridge and walking away if we're going to have an extra piece of cake we didn't need. We can apply that in all sorts of situations. And so with Mel Robbins, not only did she help herself have a full recovery from depression using that technique, but I think that they've since been Well, certainly hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who've picked up on that simple little technique and I think it's a very nifty behavioural strategy. Yeah, well, it's certainly a very interesting technique and look, I must admit, I'll just tell you a little story that sort of came to mind and and there's maybe a, a bit of a danger when using a technique like that, but... I remember when I was sort of, you know, growing up back in school days sort of thing and like many teenagers had a bit of an issue getting out of bed in the morning, some mornings. <laughs> and, uh, and so what I'd do in order to get myself out of bed was I'd count down from 20, just like that. But what would happen is you'd get down to about 12 and then you'd start talking yourself out of what would happen when you get to one. So you sort of think, well, oh, you know, I've counted down 18 already. Like I may as well just keep counting sort of thing. So I think having the number at five is maybe a better technique than maybe having it a bit too high where you've almost got too much time to think your way out of something. Yes, I don't think we can assume that you would have run out of glucose by the time you got to eight. So it's something else. Yeah, I think you're right. That nifty, quick strategy, it's like before thinking, isn't it? It's like it's not even having to think. It's so immediate. And if we get in the habit of doing that again and again and again, the five, four, three, two, one, we're reprogramming ourselves and building our starter motor. Well, it's a little bit like when this is probably going to create a perception of me that I don't want now, but, but it is a little bit like when you wake up a little bit later in the morning, for example, than, uh, than you're intending to, and you look at your clock and it's almost like sort of reality hits you. It's sort of such a moment that, you know, you're out of bed and before you know what you're doing, you're actually sort of already out of bed and putting your clothes on sort of thing before your brain's even had time to kick in. So I wonder if 
part of this whole idea of motivation is about recognizing when we have a habit that's trying to take us away from performing a behavior and maybe part of some of this sort of stuff is thinking of strategies to almost trip the system a little bit and almost get in there before our brain can process things and steer us in a certain direction away from the behavior that we now have an intention to do. Yes, so it's partly about directing our attention. So if we've got an intention, just acting on it in any simple way in a particular direction that's engaging our frontal lobes, yes, it's helping prevent the sabotaging of the other habits or behaviours that might come in and interfere with it. And so it's one thing to do something in the first place in terms of it's one thing to do something once But it's something that we've spoken a little bit on the podcast before in terms of how to turn something from a behavior into a habit. So is it still that four-month time period before something's likely to be ingrained as a longer-term habit? I think it is. If we keep an activity going again and again and again, like just say if you're working from a home office and you're looking to get going by, say, 9 o'clock each morning, so you might have a, a habit that you're building up that by 10 to 9 you're ready For example, you've got your materials there, you've already made a cup of coffee, you prepare yourself to make a start. And many people would have found this, say, through the earlier lockdown and working from home for months on end, developing a kind of routine and doing something again and again and again. The early days, that probably took an effort each day. After a few weeks, it was probably coming more naturally. Now, if we keep something going for months then it tends to become second nature. And I think around that four-month mark for establishing new habits or new patterns, that's a helpful way of looking at it. But sometimes little habits, it's as short as a week to make that something more normal. For example, if people floss their teeth each day for a week, there's every chance that people will keep on doing that if they keep reminding themselves that it's worth doing. Even the 54321 technique, if you like, doing it day after day after day, but to really establish something as a habit, it's helpful if we keep on doing it for a period of at least a few months. And now, again, it's the sort of case that, as you're describing all, all this sort of stuff, and, and as I'm sort of thinking about it, it just seems so easy. <laughs> it sort of it seems, in terms of you put the intention in place and then you set some strategies to just do the behavior a certain amount of times, and then suddenly it's a habit. Well, I imagine it's not as simple as that for a whole lot of people. So is it ever the case, for example, I suppose like in the practice, for example, does anyone come in who, for example, has tried everything? They've set the intentions there, I suppose the why, the meaning, all this sort of stuff, they're okay with it, but they're just really struggling to get that behavior from something they do multiple times into something that's almost second nature. What are some things that you can say to someone in that situation? Well, there are two main examples that come to mind for that. And one is depression that we touched on a bit earlier and then addictions. But just say if we look at depression, that fellow that I mentioned, the policeman who was quite disabled from trauma reactions and all the rest of it, that was very difficult for him to get himself going even the 15th day, even the 20th day and all the rest of it. But basically he had some kind of method, something he realised he could do that would make a difference and he could build on that by doing it each day and reminding himself, at least I did that. When people are depressed, our first step is what we call behavioural activation. 
any activity that someone can engage in, and especially if it's some kind of activity that can give people a sense of achievement and pleasure. Now, people might get almost 0.5 out of 10 level of pleasure about going for a walk. People might get maybe only a 1 out of 10 level of achievement. But we try and remind people in those situations, this is a lot more difficult to get going than it looks. So factor in, factor in that kind of difficulty and give yourself some genuine acknowledgement for how difficult it was to do. But basically it's some kind of self-talk encouragement and just getting going, doing something, anything, and then building on that. And if people can keep things going, say for a few weeks with that behavioural activation, people do tend to get a bit of a pick-up in mood with depression, and that tends to take it further. So in their case, that's largely about building a simple routine. And certainly we know that anything around physical exercise or physical activity is where people are likely to get some of the greatest return for depression. But just say if it's dealing with something like addictions or obsessive compulsive disorder might be another example. But I'll use the example of addictions that we talked about recently. There's a field of psychology called motivational interviewing. And I think that's an especially helpful model for helping motivate us to act in different ways, say curbing an addiction. And one of the things that emphasises, as you were raising earlier, is the notion of importance and confidence of changing a problem. And how we start off with motivational interviewing is we ask people to rate on a 0 to 10 scale. How important is it, for example, to that person to cut back their alcohol use to no more than four standard drinks a day? How important is that to them? And secondly, how confident are they to do that on a 0 to 10 scale? And we pick the one that people are rating the least. So if they rate the importance as, say, 3 out of 10, then we might say, okay, well, why is it a 3 and not a 0? So, for example, at least get the person to think about, to some extent, how it is important to them. It's been interfering with their sleep. They've been more irritable. It's affecting their health in some way that they've learnt about. Something along those lines. But then we can ask them, well, why is it a three rather than a six? What would get it to a six? Oh, if I had more direct evidence that was affecting my health. Then it might be encouraging the person to book in for a checkup with their GP, for example, and maybe having some tests done. And there might be some information that comes back that might indicate more objectively some of the harm that people are experiencing from their alcohol use, for example. So that would be, if they're having more difficulty on the importance, we'd look at ways of helping bolster that. But if people are having difficulty with their confidence, so for example, it might be a 3 out of 10 level of confidence compared to importance might be 6 out of 10. Well, if they're rating their confidence low... Again, we might start off saying, well, why is it not a zero? And they might say, oh, well, a few years ago I had a dry July and I managed better than I thought then, so I suppose it's not a zero. And then we might say, well, why is it not higher at this point? Why is it maybe not a six at this point? And the person might say something to the effect, well, I'm under a lot more stress at the moment. Uh, I've been struggling in different ways. I don't feel I've got so much energy to take on something else. And then we might ask the person, well, what might help it get from a three to a five level of confidence? Oh, well, maybe if I had less stress on me, 
maybe if this challenge that's come up in a work situation were resolved, that could make a difference. And then we might go on to explore something like, well, what if they were more confident of their other ways of managing with stress? That might nudge it up, well, even from a three to a four or a three to a five. And so that might become more of the focus of the therapy to be more confident. The person might need to feel that they've got other better ways of dealing with stress so it has less impact on them. So they have other ways than, for example, using alcohol. I really like, just to pick up on one of the things that you said there, in terms of that whole idea of what would it take to get me to a certain point? Because like, I think, and you'd be able to speak to this much more than I would, but the problem-solving centres in your brain, they're different, for example, from, say, the habit-forming centres in your brain, for example. So my understanding is that it almost actually engage a different part of your brain as a tool to try and achieve the outcome. Yes, it's about really engaging your frontal lobes. So your frontal lobes are about your purpose or your why of doing things. Our frontal lobes are involved in forming intentions. Our frontal lobes are to do with appraising a situation, getting feedback, correcting our behaviour in certain ways. So what motivational interviewing is about, including looking at importance and confidence of change, is we're trying to engage that personal intention. And when you think about it, it's not going to work so well what often happened with health advice in the past. It might be a doctor saying to someone, look, you've got this problem from not engaging enough physical exercise, you're overweight, you should get on to swimming or running, Uh, I suggest you do it, you know, several times a week and if you do that for 150 minutes then that's likely to help you so it's very important you do this so how about you go out and do that now I'm kind of paraphrasing and oversimplifying the situation but often in the past health advice like asking people or telling people to quit cigarettes was a pretty blunt instrument whereas that's not going to work often in helping people actually follow through with a change of behavior so in motivational interviewing as William Miller, who developed the field, would describe, people are only likely to change if their change talk or their reasons for change and thoughts about change outweigh their sustained talk or keeping things the way they are by about two to one. So about two to one, we have to have about twice the thoughts or strength of the thoughts in terms of wanting to change or intending to change than thoughts thinking it's too difficult, it's not worthwhile, I don't have the time to do it, I'm too stressed to do it. The sustained thoughts or the don't change thoughts need to be outweighed about two to one for us to really make a difference. And for that to happen, we have to be personally involved in our reasons for change. We have to come from the place of our own frontal lobes, if you like, to form that intention. And so looking at that idea of change talk versus sustained talk, How can we, I suppose, make more of our self-talk be of that change talk model? I think it's partly going to be the questions that we ask ourselves to motivate ourselves. And I'll just briefly mention also part of the motivational interviewing model is what we talked about on the addictions episode about stages of change. It's looking at what stage we're at. People can be at a pre-contemplation stage of change, meaning I'm not really ready to think about change. I'm not really motivated to do anything. I'm not thinking it's an issue. Other people might think it's an issue, but I don't, about my anger or about my drug taking or something like that. That's the pre-contemplation stage. The contemplation stage is I think there might be 
some kind of issue, but look, I'm not really that motivated to do so much about it. Well, we might explore a little bit more information about it, but we're not so engaged. Then there might be a preparation stage. We're actually starting to look up the internet to see if there's information on a particular kind of health problem or whatever that we might look to tackle. Then there's an action stage where we're ready to do something about it. And then as we've talked about before, once you take some action, it's keeping it going. It's allowing for lapses, but you keep it going for four months, keep it going as a habit, not get too disappointed if we lapse in some ways. But if we're around that preparation stage, moving on to an action stage, if we're ready to do something differently, these are some of the questions that can be worth asking ourselves. And actually, we might make a note of these questions on the, the website, the episode page as well, because these are the kind of things that can motivate us. If we think, why do I want to make this change? How could I do it? So actually have some kind of vision in your mind or be open to brainstorming what could make a difference to help you do it. What is a good reason for making this change? Or even you might even think up, what are three reasons for making this change? How important is it and why? And if we think it's important to say a four out of ten, well, why not a two? Why is important as a four? In other words, really engage with the question of its importance. Then what do I intend to do? Maybe even thinking of something very small that I might start with. Okay, what am I ready and willing to do? Okay, well, I'm at least prepared to do such and such. I'll at least... Go for a walk for 10 minutes on Saturday, for example, before lunchtime. Then what have you already done? It's paying attention to even the things that you've done in a warm-up. It might be information that you've looked up. It might be that you've bought some gym gear to engage in exercise more. It might be that you've driven past the swimming pool and wondered whether you'd go in and realised that you're taking steps that are nudging in that direction. I think sometimes it's about making a start and nudging us further. But if we ask ourselves those kind of questions and engage with the image of what would it be like if we do follow through on that behaviour? How would it be to us? How would it seem to us if we'd engaged in some exercise three times a week, every week over the next few months? How am I likely to feel at the end of the day if I've completed that work project, that kind of thing? But then if we have ways of establishing routines and establishing new habits or new steps towards habits and building on that, it's starting somewhere, it's building on it and keeping it going. But those are the kind of questions that can help us make more of a start. Well, I think it comes back a little bit to that concept as well of what we measure will change as well. So if we're really deliberate about the way that we think about this sort of stuff, and to me, I guess those questions are a really good way of measuring where we're at with our motivation on things because it's something that can be quite hard to sort of qualify or quantify in that way. So if we can ask ourselves those questions and particularly that one about what's my intention in this situation because that can separate something that you may think you have motivation to do, but when you actually break it down into all the steps in terms of, all right, this is what I actually have to do to achieve this, well, then you can realise that you're not motivated to do it after all. Yes, actually, you've mentioned a combination of two powerful things there. You've mentioned about intention, but also you were saying about monitoring and what you monitor will change. Now, I talked about the behaviour modification field 
And in that field, they did research saying what would make the most difference on people maintaining a change in their behaviour. And one of the number one things that was found was monitoring. So, for example, if someone's looking to do more exercise, if they just note down, even on a calendar, the number of times that they've gone for a walk or a swim or a cycle or whatever that week, that's a powerful motivator. If people are looking to cut back on cigarettes, if they count up, the number of cigarettes that they've smoked that day, then there's the incentive to get that down, then there's the incentive to have more cigarette-free days or alcohol-free days, or it could be any other behaviour that people are looking to increase or decrease. And actually, I'll just mention, if there's anything I think of from the first lockdown that helped me in terms of monitoring, it was actually monitoring the time I spent on different types of work-related activities. And that had two effects. One is it led to an increase in time I spent on activities that I wanted to spend more time on, for example, certain types of writing, but it also led me to contain the amount of time I spent on things that were less important or otherwise it was a motivation to do some things more efficiently so it wouldn't spend as long on them. So that was a personal experience. But actually, I'm inclined to ask you, Rowan, is there anything that you can think of of this next period of lockdown that you'd be interested to make a change in or feel motivated to change in in any way? Because I've got a thought for myself. Oh, look, there's a couple of things, but I suppose if there's anything that's really rammed at home to me today, it's that you've got to have more than just the intention to change things. So... I suppose if I look about things that are potentially worth thinking about doing during this next period of lockdown, well, it can't just be about setting the intention to do it. It's actually about breaking down all the steps. So I think now to uh, back to my coffee table at home and there's a uh, a half-done jigsaw sitting on the coffee table at the moment. So uh, look, that could be potentially something that maybe some of today's information could come in a bit handy with because... For me, that was an example of maybe where setting an intention to get that jigsaw puzzle done wasn't enough in that case. Well, I quite like that example because it's something that sounds quite simple and doable and it strikes me that once we complete some kind of goal, it tends to give us more positive energy to go on with others. Well, actually, I'm reminded of another principle too. If we make a commitment or say something we intend to do in front of someone else, or to someone else, it can add to accountability and following it through. Well, you know some areas around my work desk at the moment are quite messy. <laughs> now, I've started decluttering in certain areas. I've decluttered around a chair and I've decluttered a part next to the bookshelf that I was finding it more difficult to access recently. And so I can take, oh, I've actually decluttered my desk. I'll mention that as well. <laughs> but decluttering is a theme and I did a lot less of that the first time around than I intended to. So I hope you see a very significant difference, not necessarily all over the next week, but certainly over the next month, I hope you see a very significant difference there. Well, the fact that you had to declutter next to your bookcase probably says it all. I'll just leave it at that. But uh, Oops. (laughs) Yeah. But no, I I think that's a good point in terms of now that we have this second opportunity to have another period at home, Well, I know certainly for the second half of the first period of lockdown, I was a lot less deliberate about what I was doing. And even though I felt motivated to do certain things, well, 
maybe the importance was there without the confidence side of things as well. So hopefully everyone out there is a little bit like us in the sense that they're able to get something out of today and and know that they'll be able to put things into practice and change something for them too. Yes, hopefully, like as for us, it'll be a bit of a nudge. And as always, Dad, we've got the podcast page up on the website at chrismackey.com.au and that's got all the resources that we've mentioned in today's episode and we'll pop a few more up there as well. But thanks for that today, Dad. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Rowan.